All right, let's pray and get started here. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be here, to look at your word, to learn. We pray that your spirit would be moving in our hearts and help us to be teachable, help us to see the things that you want us to see and learn. Lord, we thank you so much for Beth and the time that she's put into this talk and preparing and um, seeing what you would have for us. I pray that you would speak in and through her and um, that you would help her to speak clearly and that you would bless this time of teaching. Pray that you would bless our small groups and our discussions, that you would lead them and guide them and that you would teach us. Lord, we pray for the children downstairs to do well and to be drawn to you as well. We thank you so much for the beauty of your creation this fall and the sunshine and the colors and the way that we can see how amazing you are. We pray that you'll be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it sounds like this is on and you can hear me. Good morning, ladies. It's good to be with you. You're a little bit more uh, talkative than the group on Tuesday night. <laughs> Today we are studying the fourth chapter of Second Samuel. Let's start by observing the historical context, examining the characters involved, studying the, event, the events of the chapter, and finally drawing lessons for personal application. Let's begin with the historical context. The events of 2 Samuel 4 represent a crossroad between major events, namely the death of Saul and his son Jonathan in a battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa in the final chapter of 1 Samuel. Also, the anointing of David as king over the southern kingdom of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Also, the murder of Abner, the commander of Saul's Israelite army, by Joab, David's commander in Judah, in chapter 3, and the exciting and long-awaited crowning of David as king of God's united people, drawing Judah and Israel together under one king and into one nation, in chapter 5, which we study next week. Deception, betrayal, brutal fights, murder, blood and gore, sin and godlessness, along with their consequences, including some measure of justice, wisdom, and godliness on David's part, fill the 12 verses of chapter 4. It sounds like the perfect chapter for ladies to want to look into and study. <laughs> However, there's good, good things for us to learn in this chapter. At times, it's difficult to separate the bad guys from the good guys. Everyone in the story seems to have a changing group of personal and national alliances and special interests. We never know whom to trust or what lies around the next corner. The events look like a big mess. Tim Chester says in his commentary, Second Samuel for You, we can debate the morality of the various key players, but perhaps that misses the point. This is not a morality tale. It is part of the story of redemption. The key player is not Abner, Joab, or David. The key player is God, and in the next chapter we'll explore what God is doing through this mess of history. In the meantime, 
we see the danger of investing our hopes in human heroes. The weakness and failure of these human heroes makes us hunger for the one true hero, Jesus. Let's take a look at the main characters in chapter 4. These include people of varying social classes and positions, including kings and royalty, rulers and top military leaders in Israel and Judah, as well as soldiers and the common people of Israel and Judah. Let's begin with Abner. After the death of Saul, Abner became the acting ruler of Israel, even though he established Ithbosheth, Saul's son, as the puppet king. Abner's alliances changed when King Ishbosheth accused him of taking one of Saul's concubines, which was a sexual sin, but also signified a move to take over the kingdom. Although we do not know if the accusation was true, perhaps Ishbosheth was on the right track regarding Abner's intentions. As chapter 3, verse 6 reads, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. The influence of Abner, son of Ner, the former commander of Saul's Israelite army, continues into chapter 4 by virtue of his absence, which occurred when Joab, the commander of David's army, murdered Abner in chapter 3. Joab hated Abner for killing his brother Asahel in the battle of Gibeon and took the opportunity to avenge his brother's blood when Abner came to Hebron to talk with David about negotiating peace between their two kingdoms. Abner seemed to be the last obstacle obstacle to David's taking the throne as Israel's king. Therefore, the death of Abner was the turning point for Israel. Joab's sinful act of murder, murdering Abner, which effectively removed Ithbosheth from the kingship of Israel, paved the way for David to assume kingship. Abner's former presence as the strong and powerful leader in Israel, trusted and respected by the people, by his military, and by former foreign rulers, provided Israel with a defender who would keep them safe. After King Saul and Jonathan died in a battle against the Philistines, Abner led Israel and served as the advocate between Israel and David. Now that Abner was dead and the peace treaty with David dissolved, the people of Israel felt like sitting ducks. The death of Abner signals the imminent coming of David's kingdom to Israel and the downfall of Israel's present leadership. Abner's former role in Israel and the absence of it following his death highlight the dire state of Israel at the beginning of chapter 4. Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, had lost courage, and the people became alarmed. Let's look at King Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was appointed king of Israel at the age of 40 and reigned for two years. We read in chapter 2, verse 11, that David was king of Judah in Hebron for seven and a half years, but Ishbosheth was only king for two years. There were several years between Saul's death and Ishbosheth's rise to the kingdom, to the throne. It's possible that it took Ishbosheth a number of years to be recognized as his father's successor, and the two years of his reign roughly correspond to the last two to three years of David's reign over Judah 
at Hebron. We conclude that Abner, Abner did not appoint Ishbosheth king immediately after Saul's death, but five years into David's reign in Judah, when Abner calculated that his interests lay with Ishbosheth. Abner takes the initiative in the power vacuum created by Saul's death to place this unassertive son of Saul, Ishbosheth, on the throne of Israel as a pawn for his own ambitions. Abner had taken Ishbosheth, brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king. Ishbosheth lived in the city of Mahanaim, a Gileadat town in Transjordan, beyond the sphere of Philistine domination. In essence, Mahanaim was a kind of refugee capital. The area Ishbosheth ruled suggests that his actual role, which included territory both east and west of Jordan, was quite limited. And the suggestion in 2 Samuel 2.9 that he ruled all Israel was more claim than reality. David ruled Judah and Simeon while the Philistines controlled large sections of the northern tribal regions. Ishbosheth is passive in all these events and not the agent of his future, but a puppet in the hands of Abner. The only time we read that Ishbosheth initiates anything is when he accuses Abner of taking Saul's concubine. But even in this, he lacks the power to follow it through because he is afraid of Abner. There is no evidence showing that Ishbosheth had strong support among the Israelites generally. Ishbosheth was king in name only and without real power, and finds himself forsaken by his friends and at the mercy of his enemies in chapter 4. Let's move on to Bayana and Rechab, the sons of Rimen, the Beerathite, from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and they serve King Ishbosheth as experienced military leaders commanding his raiding bands, most likely responsible to fund the Israelite government by plundering nearby foreign settlements. We expect them to be loyal to and trusted by Saul's house. However, they decide to capitalize on their king's reversal of fortunes to their own advantage. Their original hometown of Beeroth, located on the northern border of Benjamin and Ephraim, was a former Gibeonite settlement, approximately four miles northwest of Jerusalem. Its Canaanite people fled from Beeroth to Gitaim to escape harassment. Bayana and Rechab were descended from a family of Benjaminites that helped resettle Beeroth after the original inhabitants were forced to move to Gitaim. Bayana and his brother Rechab thought they had a great plan to secure the throne of Israel for David by killing the heir apparent to Saul's throne, Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Let's move on to Mephibosheth. These names are fun to say. It's a good thing you're not too close. <laughs> there might be some spray. Uh, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson, was the only other viable claimant to the throne from the house of Saul. Mephibosheth became permanently lame in both feet at the age of five when, after hearing the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths, 
at the hand of the Philistines, his nurse picked him up hastily and dropped him while fleeing the royal palace in Gibeah to protect this potential heir to the throne. As with Ishbosheth, the writer of the book of Samuel changes Mephibosheth's given name from Merib Baal to Mephibosheth, which means exterminating idols or destroying shame. In Israel, the king needed to be a military man, able to fight and provide strategy for the battles the country needed to engage in for its own safety and survival. Mephibosheth's handicap made it impossible for him to go to war. So he was an unlucky contender for the throne of Israel following Ishbosheth's demise. I'm just going to mention to you at this point that this was the chapter that no other teacher wanted to teach. <laughs> the only one left. I don't know why. Anyway, moving on. The people of Israel. Many concerns and questions may have been going on in the minds of the people of Israel, such as, was David the deceptive party when he talked of peace with Abner and then turned around and killed him? As we know, this is not true. David knew nothing of Joab's plan to kill Abner and certainly didn't sanction or support it. Secondly, will David now show his true intent towards Saul's kingdom and retaliate on the northern kingdom by attacking it now that Abner is dead? The Israelites are vulnerable without a strong leader, a defender in battle, and an advocate for peace with David and other surrounding peoples. However, do the people of Israel remember or even know David's heart? Do they remember the times David could have killed Saul and didn't, even when his military men would have done it and encouraged David to do it also? Initially, do they know that Abner's murder was not by David's hand or by his command? Do they remember that David mourned when King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle? Do they remember that David had the Amalekite killed who fabricated the story about killing King Saul? Do they know that David was not behind Joab's killing of Abner, even though he did not have Joab killed? Do they know that David had no part in killing Ishbosheth, rather showed respect for his brother-in-law by giving him a proper, proper burial? and laying his head in the grave of his general, Abner? The Israelites did know three things about David. Number one, they knew his reputation as a military leader. Most likely, some of them had fought in battle under his command when he led Saul's military campaigns and had witnessed his leadership, bravery, and integrity up close. They remembered his courage and trust in God when he fought and defeated Goliath as a young man, having more regard for his God than himself. They also knew his successes in battle. Do you remember the chant that came from the mouths of the dancing women in 1 Samuel 18:7? Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. Later, the servants of Achish, king of Gath, refer to this chant in 1 Samuel 21, 11. David's skill as a military general seemed to be a well-known fact among his people 
and the surrounding nations. Number three, the Israelites knew, perhaps, God's promise to make David the next king of Israel. Let's move on to David. David was anointed three times. First, as a young man by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 2. Then again, by the men of Judah in Hebron in 2 Samuel 2, 4. And he will be anointed later by the elders of Israel in Hebron in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Approximately 20 years passed from the first time Samuel anoints David to David's third anointing as king of Israel. Despite the long wait and circuitous path to kingship, David patiently waits and continues to be a man after God's own heart, not trusting men, but trusting the Lord who has delivered him out of all trouble. Verse 9. David expresses his commitment to the Lord and also his faith in God's direct involvement in the outcome of daily events. David has not taken the initiative to remove Saul and his offspring from the throne and has not allowed or condoned others who wish to do so. He trusts that God will keep his promise to bring him to the throne of Israel in his own time and in his own way. David works to heal the nation by encouraging peace and punishing wrongdoing. David generally does not reward people who try to play God or kill innocent people in that pursuit. However, he did let Joab, his nephew, his sister Zeruiah's son, who killed Abner, get away with murder. It is clearly important that we have a realistic view of leaders, that leaders have made mistakes, even bad mistakes, does not prevent them from exercising good leadership at other times, as David clearly did. That leaders at times exercise good leadership does not prevent them from making serious mistakes at other times, as David clearly did. Let's look into the events of chapter 4. The chapter begins with King Ishbosheth hearing the shocking news that Abner had died in Hebron, and he loses courage. He realized that Abner had been Israel's true leader, and without him, the kingdom was in trouble. The primary mission Israel's elders placed on their king was to go out before Israel and fight their battles, which Ishbosheth could not do without Abner. In essence, Ishbosheth could not retain the throne of Israel without Abner. The people of Israel realize that without a military leader or advocate, they are defenseless in the event that David and his military forces initiate a battle for control of the northern tribes. The Israelites know David's reputation as a strong and successful military leader, as well as the promises God has made to make him king of Israel. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. It seemed that everyone in Israel could see the writing on the wall, because verse 1 states that all Israel became alarmed when they heard of Abner's death. David has many self-proclaimed assistants who want to help him take the throne of Israel and bring reconciliation and reunion to the Jewish people. 
in verse 12 of chapter 3, before Bayana and Rechab ever appear on the scene, Abner wants David to make a peace agreement with him in exchange for helping David bring Israel under his kingship. We must ask the question, is assistance needed to secure the throne of Israel for David? We must conclude that neither God nor David needs human help to secure the throne of Israel because God is able and bound by his promise to bring it to pass. The fact that Biana and Rechab offer assistance to David on behalf of God is surprising in view of what is known of the weakening of Saul's kingdom and the continued growth of David's kingdom. Even humanly speaking, one could see that help was not necessary to put David on the throne of Israel, and yet the brothers still seek to provide it. It is noteworthy that these helpers are not from are from Israel, not from Judah. They seem to have given up on their own kingdom and its leaders and view the coming of David's kingship as the best path for Israel as well as an inevitable reality. Joyce G. Baldwin in the Tyndale Commentaries on First and Second Samuel calls these people opportunists who prevented David from pursuing to the end the policy on which he had set his heart. Since Abner had severed his relationship with Saul's house and its leaders, Bayana and Rechab now seek to further Abner's mission without him, doing what they think will bring them favor in David's eyes and protection in the new kingdom. Desiring to be on the winning side with David in their debt and willing to be to reward them when the kingdom is secured under his rule becomes their goal. As is often the case with sinful men, mixed motives drive the actions of these brothers. They want to support David out of fear of what David will do to those in Israel's leadership when he comes to power, preferring to secure a place in David's kingdom ahead of time. Enter Rechab and Bayana to save the day in this time of vulnerability in Israel. They seem to have easy access into the inner part of the king's house, and to the king himself at a time of the day when the king would be most vulnerable. Even the home of ordinary Israelites could be expected to have more security, especially during the afternoon rest hour. Ishbosheth did not seem to have any suspicion that there might be traitors among his troops. The brothers enter the king's house under the false pretense of getting some wheat from an interior storeroom but enter the king's bedroom instead and assault him using methods which result in quick and certain death. The brothers travel south all night by way of the Arabah, a desolate and deserted pathway which extends from Mahanaim in the Jordan Rift Valley north of the Dead Sea southward. The brothers' timing and route kept them from being detected by forces loyal to the house of Saul and brought them to Hebron as quickly as possible. They promptly, confidently, and expectantly, I can almost laugh saying this, sorry, approached David with their prized trophy, proving their dastardly deed without regret for their actions or any suspicion that they may not be looked upon with favor or appreciation. Bianna and Rechab told David the whole story 
including all the details, without having a clue that David would not be okay with them killing an innocent man in his own house, on his own bed. They may not have said so much, given so many details, or even committed the murder if they had known the outcome. They must not have known David very well or the history of his actions and decisions, or even his character. Perhaps even having known these things about David, they could not comprehend in their sinful nature that someone in David's position would not be glad to see things progressing toward his kingship by any means possible. After all, they were doing this to serve the Lord by taking divine vengeance on Saul and his offspring and helping God's chosen king, David, take the throne of Israel. Who could take offense at this? They may have thought. They assumed God and David would approve of their actions and reward them generously for their hard work and loyalty. The brothers operated on the principle that the ends justify the means. In essence, these brothers were seriously mistaken. Bayana and Rechab misjudged both David and the situation. The brothers failed to understand David's policy on committing murder. They were crediting God with a sinful, murderous deed, which he could not sanction or require of them, and which David could not leave unpunished. Bayana and Rechab also did not understand David's respect for Saul and his royal family, or David's commitment to the royal responsibility of upholding the teaching of the Torah. Robert Bergen, in the New American Commentary on First and Second Samuel, states that David could not commend or reward these men because he had obligated himself by an oath in the Lord's name to demand their lives in punishment for their murder of Ishbosheth. The Torah demands that wicked men who have killed an innocent man in his own house on his own bed, and those are the exact words in the Torah, have their own lives taken. David continued to rely on the Lord to redeem his life out of all adversity and to fulfill his promises. It is God who conceived and perfected David's path in life, not Diana and Rechab. These two murderous conspirators had to pay the ultimate price for their sin and died under a divine curse, as seen by the fact that David had their hands and feet cut off and their bodies hung by the pool in Hebron. Rebecca Manley Pippert in the book A Heart for God explains that both facts of Ishbosheth's murder are significant. Killing a man while he's lying down and perhaps sleeping indicates it is not an act of war, but an assassination a cold-blooded murder. This explains why David calls Ishbosheth innocent. Although his life was not innocent, his death was not a judicial act and therefore innocent. Secondly, cutting off Ishbosheth's head parallels the death of his father Saul. Both are struck in the stomach and then beheaded. Both deaths are reported to David by people who think they will uh, earn his favor by their murderous actions. Bayana and Rechab badly miscalculate David's loyalties, just as the Amalekite did in chapter 1, and are punished by death, mutilation, and public exposure for their crime. 
Thirdly, Ishbosheth's death is also similar to that of Abner. Both are murdered in an inner room through a stomach wound by brothers. Mary J. Evans comments in the message of Samuel, the death of Ishbosheth compounded the problem that David had after the death of Abner. It was becoming increasingly hard for his kingship of the northern tribes to be seen as a welcomed handover rather than as a feared, unavoidable, and probably unwelcome takeover. It was again vital that David disassociate himself completely from their action, and so, like the Amalekite in chapter 1, they are immediately executed. In his, second, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, Dale Ralph Davis titles this chapter, The Gore of Man Does Not Work the Righteousness of God. And he lays out four statements which help us work through the chapter. Number one, sarcasm provides an excellent vehicle for truth. Biblical writers are quite adept at using sarcasm to shock, both mildly and severely, God's people into having a true perspective on things. Sometimes the sarcasm is overt and blatant, and at other times, subtle. Bayana and Rechab portray themselves as doing a great and heroic deed for David in bringing to fulfillment God's promise to give David the throne of Israel. In reality, they are weak and cowardly men. These brothers claim their murderous act represents the Lord God avenging King David. Their claim presumes God's approval of what they did and claims they acted in response to the Lord's orders. Even humanly speaking, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth are not much of a threat to David. Neither of these men could fulfill the role of a strong king, one for reasons of strength of mind, courage to continue resistance, and strong character, and the other for reasons of physical inability. A possible point of confusion occurs in verses 5 to 7. Verse 7 repeats the information recorded in verses 5 and 6 concerning the brothers entering Ishbosheth's house while he slept and killing him. Although some have suggested these verses represent two confused accounts, it's common practice in normal Hebrew narrative that writers sometimes repeat a fact or a situation with an added detail that expands on the previous statement. The added detail in verse 7 is the beheading of Ishbosheth. Dale Ralph Davis thinks that repetition of the facts laid out in verses 5 and 6 regarding the brother's entry into the house while Ishbosheth was sleeping and then killing him shows the writer's sneer toward the brothers and their far from heroic actions. Are you truly strong and heroic if the person you are fighting has no chance of defending himself? How does the sarcasm lead us to truth in this passage and in our own lives? Rechab and Diana appear bold and daring at first, but when we look again at the facts and at the actions of these brothers, we see that they are weak and cowardly rather than strong, courageous, and manly as we had first thought. Sisters, we can be deceived, not truly understand what is going on in our own lives in the lives of those around us, and in national and global situations. We desperately need discernment in order to see the real beneath the veneer of the apparent. We need God's wisdom 
as we live our lives. Proverbs 18.17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Take some time in your small groups to pray for this discernment and ask for wisdom to distinguish between ungodly and godly opportunism. The second uh, statement is that theology... The second statement is that theology provides an excellent cloak for evil. Biana and Rechab brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. The brothers implied that they acted as servants of the Lord and executed his justice by killing David's rival, thus making it possible for the fulfillment of God's will and his promise to make David king over Israel. The theology on their lips did not justify the blood on their hands. We need to be aware of using theology to cover, rationalize, or reinterpret our sin. Theology can be used to explain almost anything from foolish actions to sin and to explain why consequences have not immediately come our way. Perhaps you've heard the expression, the devil made me do it, which blames Satan for our actions. Or have noticed that God seems to let us get away with things at times without obvious consequences, and we conclude that God doesn't think there's anything wrong with sin. We interpret God's long-suffering, patience, and grace for his approval of sin. May God convict us when we think this way. When explaining things theologically, we may be using God as an argument or manipulating him for our own convenience to avoid submitting to his grace or to his laws. Some examples of this would be a person who views himself or herself as a defender of doctrinal precision, who explains, corrects, and informs others with harshness, even in matters of lesser clarity. Or a church member who has been approached by the elders with church discipline, who responds with theology, stating that we are all sinners and God is compassionate and the elders do not have the right to interfere in members' lives this way. We need great wisdom and discernment in these matters, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. We need to see the real under the veneer of the apparent. Second Timothy 3, 16 to 17 states the correct place of theology in the life of God's people. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Theology leads us to worship rather than to justify ourselves. Number three, gratitude provides an excellent antidote for idolatry. Verse nine states, David answered Rechab and his brother Baana, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, etc. 
This phrase expresses gratitude to God for his protection and deliverance of David in the past. David could have thought and acted in an idolatrous way by giving credit and gratitude to the brothers for killing David's enemy and clearing the way for him to assume the throne of Israel. He could have credited men with God's gracious deliverance. However, these brothers are not God's redeemer, are not David's redeemers, and he does not owe them anything for delivering the kingdom into his hands. Instead, with confidence and without hesitation, David expresses faith, trust, and gratitude to God. David remembered that God is the one and only true redeemer. This reminds me of one of my favorite hymns, which I especially like to sing and play in the autumn. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. I had to get some music in here somewhere. (laughs) In Psalm 103, 2-5, David expresses his thankfulness to God in these words. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The principle that gratitude nurtures fidelity, preserves God's people, and provides a safeguard for his flock. Is gratitude for Christ and to Christ a strong motive for our actions? I want to recommend Sue Lutz's booklet called Thankfulness Even When It When It Hurts. It's probably available here downstairs somewhere, but you can get it from CCEF. It encouraged me to live a life of thankfulness and brought to light the many benefits which come from thankfulness in the Christian's life. The fourth statement, justice provides an excellent encouragement for saints. David needed to do the right thing and execute justice in regard to these murderous brothers. David valued justice and acted on it because justice is important to God and encourages God's people. David ordered his men to kill the murderers, cut off their hands and feet, and hang their bodies by the fool of Hebron. David instructed his men to take the head of Ishbosheth and bury it in Abner's tomb at Hebron in Judah, a city of refuge and David's place of residence. The actions David took toward all three deceased men, Saul, Abner, and Ishbosheth, demonstrated to the whole kingdom, both north and south, that God's chosen king was a man of God and a man of justice for all, both enemies and friends. In closing, I would like to read a quote from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on 2 Samuel. Every bit of micro-justice enacted under David's regime should be taken as a foregleam of the macro-justice that David's promised descendant will enforce throughout the earth in his own time. God's people desperately need to hold on to this hope. For the Bible knows what pressure and temptation the prevalence of injustice brings on the church. If Christ's flock are continually wronged and crushed, they may be tempted to join the other ranks. 
God's people must be assured that the time will come when the Davidic king will institute Hebron justice throughout the earth. We should be amazed that in his infinite wisdom, God accomplishes his perfect will despite sinful people who make wrong choices, resulting in circumstances that seem to work against God's revealed will. Our lives can be difficult, perplexing, and the circumstances hard to understand at times. However, we can take great comfort in God's leading and will for our own lives as we study God's work in history and in David's life to bring about his perfect will and fulfill his covenant. And sisters, encourage one another with your stories of God's provision in your life. As we prepare to study chapter 5 next week, let's remember and summarize the encouragements found in 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4. In chapter 2, we read of Abner, and we see that no power can overcome the kingdom. In chapter 3, we read of Joab and see that no folly can thwart the kingdom. And in chapter 4, with Bayana and Rechab, we have seen that no injustice can establish the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your faithfulness, and your guidance. Strengthen us to embrace your will for our lives and gladly submit to the things you have ordained for us while living our earthly lives. Keep us from leaning on our own understanding rather than trusting your divine guidance. Give us lives of wisdom, thankfulness, patience, peace, hope, and joy amidst times of pain and trials, and strengthen our faith and trust in you and in your all-knowing plans for us. In Jesus' name, amen.